Well, with our time that remains this morning, uh, I'd love to open up the Word of God with you. By the way, I'm struck by how many people are here today. Um, that's awesome. I think all of us have felt a little broken just by the season of not being together. You know, um, I like that we had access to things like Zoom and YouTube to have, you know, virtual church, but it is good that we are back together. And it felt especially rich last Sunday when we were all together um, as one collective body. So really grateful for that. Um, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Fellowship Bible. I've uh, just delighted to call Fellowship Bible home. Uh, and my family and I have been coming here uh, since about 2002. It was pretty awesome seeing pictures on the screen uh, from last Sunday. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure about you, but it really struck a chord with me deeply when uh, Pastor Herman from Al Shaddai received the note from us and the gift of $875,000 to go home. Uh, his church has functionally been in exile since the great flood of 2010. I'm not sure how many of you remember that flood. If you were here in Nashville at that time, I live on the eastern edge, uh, eastern side of Concord Road. Uh, my house is about a half mile from El Shaddai, and I can still remember that day driving uh, over towards El Shaddai and looking over at the church and seeing it almost completely underwater. What a vivid, vivid picture. Um, and certainly, of course, the members there were just distraught, right? They have been, they've been relying on other people's uh, provision to be able to meet as a, as a church body. But now through your generosity and through the work of the Lord prompting you, they get to go home. I just think that's spectacular. So I'm delighted uh, to be joining you tomorrow, uh, this morning. I'm so excited to be opening up God's word today. Uh, my role this morning in the time that remains, we're gonna have, I guess, somewhat of an abbreviated sermon just because of the, uh, the ground we've covered already today. But my responsibility this morning is to kick off a brand new series. We're going to be spending the next, I think, roughly six weeks in the book of Proverbs. And uh, just so you're aware, there'll be a number of different uh, guest speakers that'll be contributing to this series. All of us have been given kind of the same directive. Uh, we've been invited to share a proverb that has in some way impacted us, uh, to share something from the book of Proverbs that's challenged us or taught us. Um, and so I'm going to be uh, speaking a little bit later this morning on what specifically has touched me most profoundly in the book of Proverbs. Now, as the kickoff or the transition into this new book, I think it's helpful to uh, establish some basic ground rules for how we even look at the book of Proverbs, because it's a different book. Uh, I learned in seminary, and this is probably self-evident to you, but there's a lot of different genres within Scripture, there's different styles of writing and they all have their own kind of rules or suggestions for how you are to interact with the text. When you're reading history, you don't read it the same way as that you would read, for example, the law, uh, the commandments given by God. When you're reading gospels, you don't read it through the same interpretive lens as you would read the book of Revelation. When you're reading Proverbs, you interpret the sayings differently than how you would interpret the Psalms, for example. Every different style of uh, the literary text we find in the Bible has some suggestions for how you are to interpret it. 
And so I'm gonna spend a little bit of time on that this morning before we get rolling into the Proverbs I wanna look at specifically. Before we do that, I thought I'd tell you what is a proverb. I Googled it. I Googled and said, uh, Google, what is a proverb? This is what it spit out to me. A proverb is a short, pithy saying that conveys a general truth or piece of advice. I don't know why I laugh every time I say pithy, but I do. A proverb is a short, pithy saying that conveys a general truth or piece of advice. Now, I'm mindful that you might be fine with that definition, but when I read it, I said, okay, I must have missed the English class where they taught what the word pithy is. So I Googled pithy. Pithy, according to Google, means containing much pith. (laughs) Still not there. So I Googled pith. And pith is, according to Google, concise and forceful. And I said, okay, now I got something I can work with. A proverb is a concise and forceful saying that conveys a general truth or piece of advice. These are kind of short, punchy statements uh, that get right to the heart of the matter and don't tend to mince words. And the goal of a proverb is to, is to communicate some truth of the world that we live in. Now, uh, whether you are recognized it or not, you all have some Proverbs memorized. And you might be saying, well, wait a minute, Mike, I actually haven't spent a ton of time memorizing the Proverbs. Well, that's tr- maybe true, but I'm gonna tell you, uh, I'm gonna start you off in a couple of Proverbs that I'm pretty sure you've all got memorized. These are not biblical Proverbs. These are like cultural Proverbs. Let me see if my uh, theory on this is correct. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. All right, very good. Let's try another cultural proverb. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Very good. Now, it's interesting that almost all of you knew this, but I bet it's, I'm gonna guess it's been years since you would have heard those words spoken. Uh, but they're stuck up here. And that's one of the cool things about the genre of proverbs. These are short statements. These are often very memorable statements. And of course, when they're put to rhyme or meter, they're a little bit easier to retain as well. I love the proverbs partly because of their length. They're short, they're to the point. They read kind of like sound bites. Um, And you could almost think that uh, Twitter stole their concept from proverbs, right? Make your point in 140 characters or less. And so you better get it Right, like straight to the point. So that's kind of cool. Uh, another thing to think about in the area of Proverbs, these are general truths, okay? Think of Proverbs as being probabilities, not as being promises, right? So just, just to, just to kind of you know, feed off that theme, is everyone that goes to bed early and gets up early, are they all healthy, wealthy, and wise? Nah, you can probably find an exception, I'm gonna guess. And I'm one of those people who, for the most part, eats almost an apple a day. But that doesn't mean that someone who eats an apple every day is exempt from ever having to go to the doctor. Probably not, right? So these are general truths. Uh, they, can, they convey general statements of reality, but it doesn't mean that an, except, that an, an exception can't be found. Okay, uh, let's take a look at what Proverbs has to say about itself. Uh, so if you have a Bible, I'm gonna encourage you to go to Proverbs uh, chapter one. Uh, if I hear, some of you will have pages flipping, others of you have a device. For those of you who came ill-equipped this morning, we're gonna put it up on the screen and we're gonna look at what Proverbs 1 says about itself. Proverbs 1, verses one to three. Let's actually read this together off the screen if you're okay with that. Here we go. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, 
and equity. Now, if you read through the rest of Proverbs 1, and I would argue through much of Proverbs 2, that's kind of the full introduction of what Proverbs is aiming to accomplish as a book. But what can we learn about Proverbs as a text simply from these first three verses in the opening chapter? What's the purpose of Proverbs? You can see it right in front of you. It's to know wisdom and instruction. Now, here's what the opening verse doesn't say. Proverbs, so you can be really smart. How many, of you know, how many of you in this room know someone who is wildly, wildly smart but makes incredibly dumb decisions in life? Can I see your hand? Okay, so we recognize that there's a bit of a gap or a bit of a spread between knowledge, information, and wisdom, right? Smart people get good grades. Wise people live good lives. So the difference between information, knowledge, and wisdom is that there's an application component that's buried within problems, uh, Proverbs. Uh, the application piece is that uh, Proverbs is aimed at helping you to learn how to live skillful lives. It's truth applied, okay? So when you think about Proverbs, it's not about memorizing facts. It's about understanding God's word and how to apply it to your life so that you can develop, here's the catchphrase if you wanna write this down, so that you can develop the skill of living biblically. Proverbs is aimed at helping you develop the skill of living biblically. Now, when you uh, work through Proverbs and you sit down and you start to read through it as a book. Some of these you'll find read more like paragraphs. Some of these read more like, you know, two uh, sentence sound bites. But when you read through the corpus of Proverbs, you're gonna find that there's a number of themes that will arise. You'll find that there's a common thread or a, a multitude of common threads that kind of seem to keep popping up uh, as occurrences within the book of Proverbs. And some of you as readers, you might, you might look at that and say, he just kind of covered this in the last proverb. Why are we hitting this one again? Well, what you'll find that there's probably three or four or five general themes in Proverbs that keep raising their head. They keep showing up. And as is the case with probably any literature, whenever the author goes back and says it again and says it again and says it slightly different, clarifies it this way, what they're suggesting to you is that this is pretty important and you better listen up. And that's the case with one of the Proverbs or one of the areas of the teachings in Proverbs that I'm gonna be focused on this morning. And I wanna spend some time with you looking at Proverbs that have to deal with money. Have to deal with money. Um, what I've discovered over my career is that God has wired me to have somewhat of a financial mind. Now this would have totally baffled my parents, I'll just tell you, because I could not pass math to save my life in school. Uh, in fact, I went and did a bachelor's degree in physical education because I was awesome at gym class, lousy at most of the other subjects in school. And when I got to the university level, a bachelor's degree in phys ed was literally the only major that allowed me to fully sidestep a math component at the college level. So I successfully avoided math to the extent that I was able to. And yet when I got into the workforce, when I got into business, then I discovered if I wanted to be profitable, if I wanted to understand profit and costs, I better get reconciled with math. 
And so I went on that journey and it's actually, I've discovered that I'm wired. I've got a natural aptitude in the area of uh, finances. I speak money very fluidly and I'm, who knew, right? Um, But so I say that because when when I open up the book of Proverbs, the Proverbs that stir my heart, the Proverbs that challenge me are the ones that have to do with money. What does the Bible have to say about the skillful biblical use of money? And so we're going to spend just a little bit of time this morning looking at what does Solomon tell us in this area? And by the way, Solomon, uh, I'm, I don't think I need to tell you, is a pretty capable voice. He's a pretty qualified voice to be able to speak into this subject. We learn from 1 Kings chapters 3 and chapters 4 that Solomon, um, God offered to give Solomon a gift. I'll give you whatever you want. Tell me and I'll name it and it's yours. And Solomon didn't ask for any type of self-indulgence. He asked God humbly to provide him with wisdom so that he could lead God's people. And Solomon, as we read in 1 Kings, we discover that he was an incredible, incredibly wise person. I think it's not far out of range to say he was probably the smartest person in the entire Old Testament. People traveled from far away just to hear Solomon speak. He was extremely wise. We also know from the Old Testament that Solomon was unbelievably wealthy. The guy had a whole bunch of resources at his disposal. And so Solomon becomes this uniquely capable voice of teaching us the wisdom of money, the use of money and so forth. And so we're gonna look at some of that this morning. And what we're gonna do, just begin, because we're on a bit of a compressed time frame this morning, um, is I'm gonna look at four different Proverbs, we're gonna skip around a bit, that have to do with uh, the responsible use of your finances. And then we're gonna kind of look at what, what are the themes that we see in this. So first things first, can you jump, first of all, to Proverbs chapter 14, and we're gonna look at Proverbs 14, verses 31. Proverbs 14, 31, go ahead and put it on the screen if we've got it. And it says this, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. He who is generous to the needy honors him, capital H referring to his maker or God. By the way, if you're the type of person that doesn't feel squeamish about highlighting or underlining in your Bible, Keep up with me with your pen. I would absolutely encourage you to underline the second half of Proverbs 14.31. He who is generous to the needy honors him. Let's look at the next one. Can you uh, shoot back a few verses in Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 11? Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. It says this. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. Isn't that ironic? One gives freely, but grows richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. One who waters will himself be watered. Let's come back a little further in the book of Proverbs. We'll come back to Proverbs chapter three. We're gonna look at verses nine to 10 in Proverbs three. It says this, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty 
and your vats will be bursting with wine. You know what struck me when I read this verse? Honor the Lord with your wealth. I think of that as honor the Lord with your accumulation, that which you've uh, built up. And honor the Lord with the first fruits of all your produce. That seems to suggest your income or your job, whatever it is that is your ongoing uh, source of income. So honor the Lord with both your accumulation and your income. What happens when you do that? Your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with new wine. Look at one more. Skip ahead now to Proverbs 19. Proverbs 19, verses 17. Let's take a look at this one. I love this one. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Now, some of you right now are thinking, okay, Mike, I feel a little baited and switched here. I thought you were gonna tell us about the responsible or the wise use of money. It seems like you're simply bent on extending our generosity series yet another week. I'm certain those rascals in the first service were thinking exactly that. But guys, what we see in the text this morning is that when God, through the voice of Solomon, chose to communicate to us what skillful living looks like, what God-honoring living looks like in the realm of money, what does he tell us? He tells us that we will live much better lives and receive an abundance of his blessing if we live with open hands towards our resources. Giving to him first, treating him and his kids, his people as a first priority for how you view your money. He says, when you do that, you will be living well financially and that will result in our lives being blessed. Now there's only three or four people that chose to come up and share some of what touched you this morning from last week's service. There may be more in the room that, as Marty called out, may have had the introvert thing. I've, man, I don't know if I wanna get up in front of the room and share with everybody, but I'm gonna guess there's a number of folks in the room who were stirred by the events of last Sunday. Uh, I looked around and I saw a lot of moist eyes last Sunday, and it wasn't because people held on to their money and saw their 401k balance grow. It was because they chose to get into the game. They chose to put their money out with an open hand and to give it away to the work of the Lord. As, a, as an elder at our church, I thank you for helping us to eliminate our mortgage that's been hanging out for 12 years. I am grateful that you helped us to eliminate that expense. But were you moved just a little bit more at what happened with El Shaddai? Did that kind of challenge your heart and stir you a little bit that we went beyond what was expected and we gave away to help El Shaddai go home? That, that worked in me last week. I think all of you in this room would probably have some testimony of what generosity has been like in your life. And I've, I've seen this from both sides of the ledger sheet personally. I've, I've been in times financially where we have had incredible provision in our household and we've been able to give away a bunch of money. And I love how that feels. I love how that makes me view the world rightly and reminds me, uh, similar to how Paul speaks to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, what do you have that you were not given? We're reminded when we give away our resources that they're not really ours to begin with. 
We're just stewards. We're, we're, they're just entrusted to our care. It's not our stuff. It's not our money. We're entrusted with it so that we can make it a blessing for others. Now, some of that is you've got to provide for your household. We'll talk more about that later, but it's in our care so that we can help make this world a better place. The promises in Proverbs are profound. They tell us that God will bless us when we view money rightly. And as a giver, as a, we've had resources in our family to give, I've enjoyed the blessing of what it is to be a giver, the giver's gain, right? It's very clear in the Bible, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I've also been on the receiving end of generosity. I've been at times on my knees, unable to provide for my house financially. And I've been a recipient of generosity where I saw answered prayers coming my way that I did not expect to come where I saw the hands of other people open towards me that I didn't talk to about my need, but the money showed up. And I'm like, wow, Lord, you do answer your children's calls for help. So you're blessed when you give, you're blessed on the generosity side when you receive. Both of those experiences serve to draw us closer to God. And my friends, last week, as we experienced uh, sort of the culmination of our generosity series, we saw that not only did we eliminate our mortgage debt, we needed 800,000 to do it, check. But we sent Al Shaddai home with a little more money than what they even asked for, check. And did you hear Marty say, we've got almost a million dollars additional that will be deployed for the Lord's good to become an abundance and a blessing to people in need, both locally here in the Nashville area and afar. In fact, we've assembled a task force to figure out how to best steward those resources. What a gift. Fellowship, I know by the sheer size of the amount that we gave away that was recognized last week, I know many of you in this room are cheerful givers, that you approach your finances with a godly lens and you seek first his glory. You seek first how to be, how to honor God with your finances. I know that for many of you, you don't even need to be in this room this morning here in this sermon, that you live rightly in this regard and, and you get it. Some of you in this room passed up on that new Tesla so that you could help send El Shaddai home. I know that. But I'm gonna guess in the room this morning that there's still probably a few holdouts. I'm gonna guess that there's still some people in the room who are not 100% sure about this generosity stuff. And there might be a number of reasons for that. Maybe you're in a tight season financially and you don't quite see how giving away and living on 90% instead of 100% could possibly fulfill the family budget next month. I get that. Some of you might be in a relationship with your spouse where you're kind of on different pages. Oh, I wanna give this much and I wanna give this much. And you didn't do the sign thing and have it pop up the same number that wasn't your experience in your house. I get that. Some of you might feel like you're at odds a little bit with your spouse and you're not on common footing in terms of what we are agreed on to give. Some of you don't trust that God actually means what he says, that you will live better on 90% than you ever will on 100%. And my friends, to those of you in the room who are holdouts this morning, can I go over one more verse with you? I want us to... Uh, turn forward in our Bible, outside of Proverbs, can you go to Malachi with me? Malachi is the last book of your Old Testament before we get to Matthew. So that's how you'll find it in your Bible. But skip ahead there. I wanna go over one more verse in the Bible 
that has to do with the promise pertaining to generosity and giving. And I gotta tell you, when I first discovered this passage, when I first found this verse and I understood its implications, I just about fell out of my chair. This is truly, truly profound. Let me read it with you first and then I'll kind of go over why I was so taken by this. We're gonna look at Malachi chapter three and we're gonna look at verse 10. Before we get to it, a little bit of context. God is calling the Israelites to account. He's acknowledging to them that they have not been faithful in their giving, that they haven't trusted God fully and they were not giving the full tithe back to God. And God is taking issue with this because he sees them as living somewhat faithless. And he's told them that the nation is living under a curse because they weren't trusting God in their giving. Let me introduce you, Malachi 3, verse 10. God says to the Israelites, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. My friends, I want you to know that you're looking at the Old Testament equivalent of red letter words. This is God speaking in the first person. In the New Testament, red letter words means Jesus is speaking. In the Old Testament, this is God speaking first person. These are the equivalent of red letter words. I want you to see very clearly what he says because he only says this once in the entire Bible. Once. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. There's one place in all of scripture where God says, put me to the test and see if I will not be faithful. And it's when you're putting him first with your finances. That's profound. I know I recognized earlier in the message that Proverbs are generalities. They're not really promises. You know, uh, there's a proverb, uh, I think it's Proverb 22, 6, that says, uh, train up a child in the way he should go, and then when he is older, he will not depart from it. And we, I think we can probably all agree, well, there's exceptions to that rule. Like, I, I know a lot of people who have raised up children rightly, and then when they got older, they departed from their parents' teaching. Yes, Proverbs teach generalities. There's often exceptions to rule, to the rule, but can I tell you the strange thing about the teaching in Proverbs on generosity that's confirmed in Malachi? I don't think we can construe this as a general truth. This literally reads as a promise written in ink by God. Test me in your giving and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. My friends, I'm, I'm not up here preaching you some prosperity gospel. I'm not doing that this morning. Uh, I'm also not uh, trying to give you a formula for how you can manipulate God to try to improve your own financial equation. That's not what I'm getting at either this morning. What I am trying to show you from the Bible is that skillful living in the area of finances so that you apply the truth of the Bible into your daily lives, it starts with an open hand to the Lord's work, giving back to God that which is already his and giving to his children giving to those in need. When you do that, God promises you to meet your needs and so much more. Now, in Israel, they have a, um, 
a ceremony or a ritual, if you will. And they perform this at the end of every Sabbath. It's called a Havdalah, Havdalah. And Friday night in Israel, and true of course for Jews living all over the world, Friday night in Israel is the commencement of their Sabbath. That's when they sort of officially sort of shut down the work week and they go into their period of rest from Friday at sundown. It ends on Saturday at sundown. What we're gonna be talking about here in a moment is a ritual or a ceremony of sorts that's performed Saturday at sundown. So the Havdalah prayer is something that's used to conclude the Sabbath. It brings an end to the time of rest. And what's cool about the Havdalah prayer is that it's, it's performed by the head of the household. And what happens in the Havdalah prayer is that the head of household takes a bottle of wine and he begins pouring it into a glass uh, that is in front of the entire family. And the pouring of the wine is uh, symbolic of the intent to produce in the week ahead. We intend to put our hands back to work and we intend to have our work create uh, enough produce to be able to be a provision for our family. That's what happens in the Havdalah prayer. And that's what the, the filling of the cup symbolizes. But what's interesting in Havdalah is that the cup, is, they don't stop here. The cup is actually filled in the Havdalah prayer to the point of overflowing. And this is to demonstrate not only the intent, but also the responsibility to not only meet the family's immediate needs, but to purposely produce to excess, to have a provision for the benefit of others. Isn't that cool? In other words, I'm obligated, I'm obliged as the head of my family to produce to meet my family's needs, but I don't stop there. I continue to produce so that I will have sufficient means to give away to be a blessing to others. Isn't that cool? I love that. The symbolism in that for me is just so rich. Fellowship, our cups have overflowed. I know many of you view the world this way and I thank you for that. Part of our journey of discipleship, part of the way that we conform ourselves to the image of God is to hold on to our stuff like this. I'm gonna close our time together this morning with the Lord's table. If you would grab your communion elements for me, we'll go through this together. Hmm. Would you take the bread in your hand? You know, the New Testament, it invites us to examine our lives before we take communion. It invites us to just pause and reflect briefly before you receive the elements. I want to invite you to do that this morning. Would you take just a moment and just kind of reflect, where are you at on your journey as it pertains to your finances and to your godly and your responsible use of money? Are you where you need to be? Are you where you want to be? Or is there work yet to be done? Would you just reflect on that for a moment and be thinking about what do I need to do from here, going forward from this place? Lord, we take the bread in our hands this morning and we recognize that it's, it's a symbol of you. Lord, you don't role model generosity for us. You are generosity for us. For God so loved the world that he gave. Giving is 
who you are. It's the essence of you. And Lord, that's why I know that you bless us when we give. We take this bread this morning in recognition of the greatest gift you were able to give and that you chose to give us, and that is the gift of your son and his body broken for us on Calvary's cross. Would you take the bread? Lord, when I look at the cup, I'm mindful of the words of the prophet Isaiah that you were pierced for our transgressions. You were bruised for our iniquities and it is by your stripes that we are healed. It is because, Lord, you chose the sacrifice of the cross that we can be restored to God. So thank you for your willingness. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for extending your hand with open fingers to give us a bountiful blessing that we could not receive on our own. Would you take the cup this morning? Fellowship, in the, in the weeks and months that are ahead, I anticipate hearing and capturing some pretty cool stories from the people who have chosen to give to those in need, as well as from the people who have been the recipients of these gifts. And as Marty said, if you haven't gotten in the game yet, if you haven't chosen to participate in this, it's not too late. If you choose to still give, there'll be more money that we can put into, into play to glorify the Lord locally and afar. And I gotta tell you, there is so much joy in a life of giving. It's like a life of adventure. You will never be sad. You will never be regretful because you are stepping into a season of incredible excitement and joy and adventure. And I'm confident we're gonna have amazing stories that we will capture from how lives were changed from the money that's been given. So as Marty said, we've got a task force that's, put, that's been put in play to help us to figure out how to steward these resources. We will look forward to uh, deploying that money well and reporting back in time exactly what has been accomplished through the hands of your generosity. I wanna read one verse. I don't know why this is on my mind, but it is. I wanna read one more thing to you because it's just, uh, it's where my heart is at this morning. Um, at times in our household, whenever we've chosen to give a gift unexpectedly to someone, when, we, when we've discovered a need and we expect that they might push back and say, no, no, I got this. I sit them down and I make them read Acts 2.45 for me. So I'm gonna read Acts 2.45 for you this morning. It says, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Take care of God's children. You'll never regret doing it and it'll result in a life of joy and adventure. God bless. Enjoy the rest of your day.